Amen. Well, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And as we hear it proclaimed to us this evening, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. We ask that your spirit would illumine us to understand this text and ultimately to see Christ in it. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4, which in the Pew Bible is on page 1252. I'll begin reading at verse 1 in 1 Samuel 4, all the way to the end, all 22 verses. First Samuel 4, and starting in verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so set that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. 
As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word to us. Well, any of us who have been alive for any number of years at this point can look back at our lives and see that we have had certain turning points, certain points where some event happened or something was done to us or we did something, and after that our lives were never really the same. And nations as well have these turning points. I'm sure many of us can look back at the history of our own nation and think of various things that happened, various political outcomes, laws that were passed, wars, terrorist attacks, all, any number of things that changed how we thought and changed how we lived and changed how life went for us. Well, as we look at the, old, at the people of God in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, we see that Israel too went through many times of change, many striking periods where things changed for them, where things afterwards were not the same as they were before. And I'm sure if we've been reading our Old Testaments, we can come up with many of them in our own minds. But what we read here tonight in 1 Samuel 4 is perhaps the most shocking change that had come to Israel, the most shocking thing that had happened to her at this point in her history. In her history. She had experienced defeat many times. She had experienced many different things that we could look at as negatives in her life. Yet she had never experienced anything quite like this. She had never experienced anything really to this degree that we see in our text this evening. She was defeated by her oppressive enemies. And her priests and her judge were killed. And she lost possession of the very ark of the covenant, of the very ark of God. And yet we'll see that things were not as bad as they could have been. And in fact, God's mercy and grace to his people are showing here, even in the midst of their sin and even in the midst of judgment on them for their sin. And so we'll see three things especially this evening. First of all, the defeat of Israel. Secondly, the death of the priests. And finally, the departure of God's glory. The three things really that the text really brings out to us. The defeat of Israel, the death of the priests, and the departure of God's glory. And we see the defeat of Israel laid out for us in the first ten verses here of 1 Samuel 4. We see that Israel is in conflict with the Philistines at this time. And we can ask as modern-day Westerners, who are the Philistines? Who are these people who it's just assume that we know who they are? What is their function in the story? What does Israel think when they hear their name? What would the original audience have thought when they saw this name pop up? We don't know a whole lot about the Philistines. It seems they came from Greece and settled in the west of Canaan on the coast. 
And we see them become very prominent in the book of Judges as an opponent to the Israelites. In fact, for much of Israel's history, they were the enemy. They were the big one, the big rival to Israel. They're important enough to be mentioned 290 times in the Bible. And as we see in the book of Judges, what happens over and over again as we read through it is called the Judges cycle, where Israel sins against God, breaks the covenant with God. God sends a foreign people group to oppress them, to defeat them. They repent and cry out to God. God sends a deliverer. The deliverer delivers them from this people. And the cycle starts over again. And as Judges gets going, and as we read through it, we see that things get worse, and the Judges themselves seem to get worse. And in Judges 10, God sends the Philistines to oppress Israel for the first time. And God sends Samson as a judge when his people cry out. But Samson fails to deliver God's people from their enemies. And after him comes Eli. But as we see here in this text, clearly Eli has not defeated the Philistines either. He has not led the people of God to victory. He has not delivered them as he was supposed to as judge. And so Israel is drawn up in battle lines against these Philistines, trying once again to free themselves from their oppressive yoke. And then we come to verse 2. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And so Israel is defeated once again before her enemies. She's driven back and she loses 4,000 men. Now to us, as modern-day Americans, 4,000 doesn't seem like a large number. We're used to far larger numbers in pretty much every area of our lives, whether it has to do with money, whether it has to do with populations, you name it. We're used to very large numbers. But think about what this meant for ancient Israel. Think about the terrorist attacks on September 11th. America lost about 3,000 people. A terrible tragedy. Horrible events. And we think of ancient Israel being much smaller than America and losing 4,000 men on the field of battle. When we see this number, when we see 4,000 here, it's meant to show a shocking defeat, a defeat that's terribly tragic, a defeat that should get our attention, certainly would have gotten the attention of the Israelites. And we see here that the elders of Israel, as they're thinking through this, as they see what happens on the field of battle, are asking the right question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They know that although it was Philistine swords and arrows and spears that killed their brethren, killed their brothers and their fathers and their sons, ultimately it was, ultimately it was Yahweh, their covenant God, who had defeated them. And unfortunately, as is often the case, as we read in the Bible, that the right question is followed by the wrong answer. We know that Israel at this time in her history was in a covenant with God, an oath-bound agreement where both sides agree to have certain responsibilities towards the other, and if the covenant is broken, there will be consequences. We can think perhaps of our modern-day marriage covenant, a marriage ceremony, as an example in our own time of this covenant idea still appearing today in our culture, in our society. And at Mount Sinai, Israel had pledged that they would do all that God had commanded them to do. And God promised them physical blessings in the land if they obeyed. But if they disobeyed, 
we read that he would bring down covenant curses upon them for their faithlessness. We read in places like Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28 that these curses included defeat in battle and ultimately exile out of the promised land to be driven out of the land into which God had brought them generations before. And it's pretty clear that if they were experiencing these curses, like defeat in battle, then there was something going on here. They should have automatically recognized, okay, this is the form of a covenant curse. It was because of something they did to transgress the covenant that God made with them, that they made with him. Yet we see here in 1 Samuel 4 that they don't repent of their sin. They don't even wonder, what have we done? What is it that caused this defeat? Instead, they take matters into their own hands. They think, okay, we have this. We have this under control. And they send for the ark of God, and they bring it into the camp. And as we think about this ark, we know that instructions for building the ark were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it was essentially a wooden box overlaid with gold on the outside and on the inside. And inside the ark was the testimony of the covenant Basically, the document that gave witness that God and Israel were in covenant with each other, that they had each pledged to do certain things for each other. And there were the two cherubim, the two angelic figures on top, forming what was called the mercy seat, and that's where God promised to meet with Moses. And we read in Leviticus, in chapter 16, that the ark was to be put in the holy place of the tabernacle, separated from the people by curtains. And there was to be blood sprinkled on it once a, day, once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so by this point in Israel's history, after generations and generations had passed, and they'd been in the land for quite some time, and the Ark had been with them, and Day of Atonement after Day of Atonement had passed, the Ark was not what we think it was. It was no longer this beautiful golden box. The Ark was covered in the blood of sacrifices, The ark was probably quite disgusting to look at. Years upon years, generations upon generations of crusty blood layered over it. It was a symbol of the holiness of God and the consequences of sin. And it was kept separate from Israel so that they could know that this God with whom they were in covenant, this God whom they worshipped, was holy. And that he was not some kind of lucky charm that they could use wherever and whenever and however they wished. Not something they could use to just get themselves out of a bad, of a sticky situation. And it was only to be touched on the Day of Atonement or when God had commanded it to be moved. And yet what happens when Israel is defeated? Instead of crying out to this holy God, instead of asking, what have we done? How have we transgressed this covenant? They sin for the ark of God, bring it from Shiloh into the camp. It seems as if they wanted to remind God to act. The implication in this text is that in their mind, it wasn't them who failed, but it was God. God has forgotten. God has failed to save us. God has failed to rescue us. And they knew that he was more powerful than the so-called gods of their enemies. And clearly, as we read our text, the Philistines did too. 
In fact, this is one of the strange places in the Bible where the enemies of God's people seem to have a more healthy appreciation of God's power and might than the people of God themselves. We see here that the Israelites are basically using God like some sort of technology. And we're surrounded by technology in our day, aren't we? We can pull out our phones and open up our screens and we can do certain things in certain sequences and get the right reaction that we want. Or we think of things, simple things, like more simple things like vehicles that we turn on and we put in drive and we use the steering wheel and the gas and the brakes and we can get them to do what we want. Or vending machines, we put in the right change and hit the right buttons and we get what we want. And this seems to be what Israel is doing with the Ark of the Covenant. If we use it, we'll get what we want. If we bring it in and use God-like technology, then he's going to owe it to us. And as we think about this, perhaps it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Perhaps we begin to recognize certain similarities between ourselves and the Israelites here. Perhaps we begin to realize that sometimes we do tend to use God or attempt to use God like technology, that we use him to get what we want. And as we see what happens with Israel, this clearly doesn't work. God cannot be controlled. He is free to do as he pleases. And so we see that the Israelites are very confident now, and the Philistines are terrified because they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the camp. They've sinfully taken matters into their own hands. We're going to save ourselves, or at least we're going to make God save us. We're going to force his hand here, and he's going to redeem us this way. And not only do they lose again when they go out to battle, but they lose far worse than they did the first time. 30,000 men are killed this time, seven and a half times as many as were lost in the first battle. And the rest scatter and flee to the wind, as it were, each to his own home. The bodies of Israelites, husbands and sons and fathers, now litter the battlefield. And it's clear that their attempt to use God has not worked. God was rejecting their attempt to use him like technology. In the words of one commentator, the Philistines may have expected great blows to fall upon them, like those which fell upon Egypt, but the blow from Yahweh came upon Israel. And we see here a very clear instance of the covenant curses falling upon Israel, falling upon God's disobedient, sinful people who have broken and transgressed his covenant. The battle is lost. The priests are killed. And the ark of the covenant of God is captured by the enemies of the people of God. They're defeated, which is bad enough. But their priests are killed. And this brings us to our second point, the death of the priests, as we read about it, especially in verse 11. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. As we think about Hophni and Phinehas, if we were to turn in the English Standard Version of our Bible, back to 1 Samuel 2, we read about these men. And if we were to look at the heading, the non-inspired heading, of course, of that section, it would say, Eli's worthless sons. And you might think, well, that seems rather harsh. That isn't a very kind thing to say. But then you read 1 Samuel 2, you read what kind of men they were and what they did, and you see that that's a pretty fair summary of how the text presents them. They were stealing from God by taking portions of the sacrifices 
which didn't belong to them. And in verse 17 of 1 Samuel 2, we read, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And beyond even this, they were sleeping with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tabernacle. And we see that Eli knew about this. Indeed, all the people seem to know about this, yet nothing was really done about it. There were no consequences here. And this was great sin against God. This was a breach of his covenant, a transgression of what he had given to the Israelites. And yet when Israel is defeated in battle, they don't repent of their sins. They don't think, oh yes, we all knew this was going on. They don't even send and ask why these things have happened. But they try to take God's ark and use it. And we see that God himself saw it, although other people seemed not to see what the, what the priests were doing at the tabernacle, at the tent of meeting. And in 1 Samuel 2, a man of God comes to Eli with a message, and he says that both of his sons will die by the sword on the same day. They will both be killed on the same day. And that his line is basically rejected. In our text tonight, we see this beginning to happen. We see in 1 Samuel 4, the sons of Eli are killed by the sword on the same day. They both die. And the judgment of God fell on them as it fell on all Israel. And then we see what happens to their father, to Eli. He is very old by the time these events take place. And we read in the text that his eyesight had failed by this time. And a man from the tribe of Benjamin runs from the battle and comes up to Eli. He here has the bad news bringing to the city of Shiloh. And Eli hears the wailing. But he can't see what's going on. He can't see that this man has dust on his head and that his clothes are torn, the sign of mourning in that day. And so he has to wait for the news to reach him. We see him sitting there by the gate of the city. It seems like he is the only one in Israel at this point who knows that this was a horrible answer to the right question. He's fearing for the safety of the ark of God because he knows what might happen. He says his heart trembled for the ark of God. And as the messenger comes to him and tells him what happened, he tells him four things, really. And each of them is worse in Eli's ears. First of all, he tells him that Israel has fled before the Philistines. Secondly, there has been a great defeat of Israel's army. Thirdly, he says, your two sons are also dead. And fourthly, the ark of God has been captured. This is a message of condemnation. This is a message of wrath. This is a message of the consequences of breaking God's covenant, of sinning against him and what all sin truly deserves. And Eli is so shaken up by what he hears that he falls over backwards when he hears the news of the ark. And the text tells us that he's old and heavy and unable to catch himself. And upon impact, he breaks his neck and he dies. And we may think, well, Eli perhaps wasn't a very good father because he doesn't fall over when he hears that his sons are killed. He doesn't fall over when he hears that Israel, the people he had been judging, are defeated and thousands have fallen. He falls over when he hears that the ark of God is in the hands of the Philistines. And so we see here our final thing that the text tells us, the departure of God's glory. As if this wasn't bad enough, 
the text begins to show how it's even worse than it first seems. Verses 19 through 22, as I read here, the story of the birth of Ichabod, function in this text almost like a commentary on the first 18 verses. So verses 1 through 18 tell us what happened, and verses 19 through 22 tell us what these things really mean, what the signification of them is, what the Israelites should hear as they hear this message. And the wife of Phineas here, coming near to the time of delivery, hears that Israel is defeated and that her husband and her father-in-law are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And the shock of this news causes her to go into labor. And now she's lying there, dying in childbirth, and she names her child Ichabod as a symbol of what had happened on the day of his birth. And names today perhaps don't have as much meaning as they would have in that day. Some of us perhaps were named by our parents for certain reasons, and some of us perhaps were named by our parents because they liked the name. They liked the way it sounded. But names in ancient times, in this time and place, often meant something. It often had deeper significance than just that. And we see here what Ichabod means. Ichabod is no exception. He is named this because the glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The symbol of God's presence with his people in their midst is suddenly gone. It's taken away. In Exodus 25, when God was giving the instructions for building the tabernacle, he said, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. He was meant to dwell in their midst, yet they're defeated, their priests are killed, their judges killed, and his glory leaves. No longer is he there in their midst in the way that he was before. And if God's presence equals blessing, then his absence equals cursing. And so we see, as we read in the story and the history of Israel, that this is really rock bottom at this point. They had some low times in the book of Judges, for example. We could probably come up with many in our heads of things that happened in the book of Judges, but they never had anything happen quite like this. They never saw the judgment of God fall quite like this. Now God's symbolic presence had ceased dwelling with his people. He had left his people for a time. He had abandoned his people for their sin, as we read in Psalm 78, which tells us that God rejected his people and forsook his dwelling at Shiloh because of their idolatry. And in the context of this, perhaps you're noticing that we skipped over the beginning of the chapter. Notice again the first part of verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. At the end of chapter 3, we see Samuel established as a prophet. And we see that the Lord is speaking through him at Shiloh. And Israel, for years, had been waiting, waiting for the word of the Lord to come to them. And the word of the Lord finally comes to them through the events we read about at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And what do they do? They ignore it. They neglect it. Instead of going to Shiloh to receive the word from the Lord, they go to Shiloh to take the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle directly against the word of the Lord. And we see here that Israel is painted in a horrible picture. And we see, begin to see why these curses began to fall upon them, why God's judgment began to fall upon them. 
And this perhaps makes us uncomfortable again, doesn't it? As we have God's very word, and yet how often do we ignore it? How often do we neglect it? We look at Israel and we see these covenant curses falling upon them, and we see they deserved it, but we begin to see perhaps a little bit too much of ourselves in here. Perhaps we begin to wonder, well, why don't we deserve the same thing? And if we do deserve the same thing, why aren't these covenant curses falling upon us? Perhaps 1 Samuel 4 is a passage that you've read time and again throughout your life as a Christian, and you've wondered, what exactly is going on here? What exactly does it mean? As we see this unprecedented situation in Israel's history, they would have been asking the same thing. What is happening? How can we have any confidence for the future? How are they going to make it if God's presence has departed from us, but we're still surrounded by our powerful enemies? How could God's promises to them come to pass now? Where could they turn? Was there any hope for them, or were God's mercies over for all time? Were the things that he had promised to them no longer going to come to pass? Well, this chapter ends on a dark note. The darkest note that we've seen in Israel's history up to this point. But the story itself doesn't end here. And even in the midst of all these covenant curses falling upon Israel, even as we see her defeated in battle and her priests and her judge killed and her losing possession of the Ark of the Covenant and God's glory departing from her midst, we see the grace of God shining forth even in the midst of humanity's depravity and sinfulness. Even here, even in 1 Samuel 4, we see a picture of the gospel. We see a picture of our redemption. We read of God's judgment on Israel, to be sure. They deserved all the curses of the covenant. They had stood by while their priests defiled God's sanctuary through idolatry, through theft, and through adultery. They had failed to consult the prophet set up by God after all these years of silence, instead taking things into their own hands and disobeying direct commandments from God related to the ark and seeking to use him as they pleased. They had, really from the time Joshua died, rebelled and sinned against God time and again and again and again. They had broken the covenant oath which they swore, all these things we will do. And they deserved the ultimate curse of the, of the covenant. They deserved exile. They deserved to be driven out of the land. As we look at 1 Samuel 4, with this context in mind, what do we see? Who goes into exile? We see that Israel does not go into exile, but God does. And this is sometimes called by scholars the exile of God, the account of his exile out of the land. The Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of his presence, the place where he had met with Moses, the place where he was now bringing his word through Samuel, bears and suffers the ultimate curse of the covenant instead of the people who deserved it. And it's taken out of the land. It's taken into exile. The glory of God was now in exile is what the text is beginning to show us. And while he's in exile... He isn't still, he isn't silent, but he begins to fight against the pagan gods. He brings plagues on the enemies of his people, and he comes out from them back to his people 
in his own exodus, bearing the spoils of war. It's almost like a mini exodus that rehappens here in 1 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel 6, it's important to remember that 1 and 2 Samuel are all one story, David leads the ark of God into Jerusalem and returns it to the tabernacle. The glory returns under David, and especially under Solomon as he builds the temple, which is inhabited by God's glory to such a great degree that the priests are driven out of the temple. And as we think about what Samuel, First and Second Samuel, are trying to show us, they're trying to show us what a true king of Israel is supposed to look like, what kind of a king Israel needs. And they're pointing forward to David, but they're also pointing past David. As we see David, a man after God's own heart, the kind of king that Israel needs, and then he's presented as a sinner, just as those who came before him, just as those who came after him. And this text is pointing towards David, but ultimately it's pointing past him to his greater son. We see here in 1 Samuel 4, a baby boy born under very unusual circumstances and named Ichabod, for the glory of God had departed. And centuries later, a baby boy would be born under unusual circumstances and named Emmanuel, God with us. The opposite of what had happened, the opposite of Ichabod. In the words of the Apostle John, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this was the hope for the Israelites, even when the glory of God had temporarily departed from them. God himself had taken upon himself their covenant curse. He had taken upon himself that which they deserved as sinful men and women, as covenant breakers. And he would return under David. And centuries later, Christ the God-man, the son of David, would undergo the curse of the covenant, being cut off in the place of his people who also deserved it. As the Apostle Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And because of this, his people will dwell with him for all eternity, and he will dwell with them. And no more is there the fear that the glory of the Lord will depart from his people. Ichabod is no more. Ichabod has been undone by Emmanuel. And this is a message of comfort and hope to all who are in Christ. And as the Old Testament presents this problem, it's answered clearly by the New Testament. And if you are here this evening and you are believing in Christ, in Christ alone for your salvation and your righteousness, for your standing before God, then you should take heart as you read 1 Samuel 4. If you feel as though God's presence isn't with you in some way, remember Emmanuel. Remember that God the Son came in the flesh, that he came to dwell with us, to tabernacle among us. And because of his work, you will one day dwell with him for eternity without fear of the curse. And if you're here this evening and you're not trusting in Christ, and Christ alone is your Savior, the message to you as we read it in 1 Samuel 4 is a simple and a clear one. Repent. And believe the gospel. Only by throwing yourself on God's mercy and grace can you have this understanding, can you know that Christ bore the covenant curse for you. He was cut off 
in your place. And only then will God dwell with you as your God and will you dwell with him as part of his people for all eternity. So Israel was defeated in 1 Samuel 4, a dark chapter. Her priests and her judge were killed. The ark of God was captured and the symbol of his glory and his presence among Israel had departed from her. But she still had this hope that it would return and that the promises that God had made to her would be fulfilled because God himself took the curse upon himself. Because God took Israel's curse upon himself, then his people can look beyond Ichabod to Emmanuel and have hope. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this message of comfort and consolation that we find here in 1 Samuel 4 in this dark and bleak chapter. We thank you, Lord, that we can have and know this precious gospel of your Son that you have revealed in your word in both the Old and the New Testament. We praise you, Lord, that Christ underwent the covenant curse for us, for his people who, didn't, who deserved nothing else but to be cut off ourselves. And we can say again, Father, that you are just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we praise and thank you in his name. Amen. Our song of response this evening, our song of application this evening, will be number 406, Comfort, Comfort Ye My People. Let's stand and sing all stanzas of 406.
Saints of God, having received God's life-giving word and the promise that he will be with us in this new week of service, receive now the parting blessing of our God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you.